Welcome back again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you part six in this series where we're given the warlord era in China once over. This slice of Republican-era history lasted from Yuan Shikai's death in 1916 until the end of the Northern Expedition that we haven't gotten to yet, but will one day, but not in this episode. We left off in Part 5 in 1922 with Wu Peifu riding high in the saddle as the undisputed power in Beijing, where the official government of the Republic of China was located. He had just won an overwhelming victory over Zhang Zuolin's forces in the first Zhirli Fengtian War. And while all this is happening in the north, there's a whole parallel universe happening down in the south that we've only touched on here and there. Our focus thus far in this series has mostly been with respect to what was happening up north with the Beiyang government rather than the rival government led by Sun Yat-sen in Canton, Guangzhou. With Wu Peifu in charge up in Beijing, one of the first things he tried to establish was a good government that could lead from the top down. He assembled what became known as the Cabinet of Able Men. The call went out for all men of talent to come forth and serve their country at this hour of need. You may recall from that Wellington coup episode, he was one of those patriotic Chinese who left his idyllic life as an overseas diplomat to become part of this cabinet that Wu Peifu was personally putting together. Prior to that, Wu Peifu had reestablished the parliament. That august body hadn't had a legitimate meeting since 1917. And they dusted off Li Yuanhong, too, and brought him back as the new president of the republic, the only one to serve twice in this position, which in a way makes him the Grover Cleveland of modern China. And they both had mustaches, too. You'd think, at last, this could be the break the Chinese nation needed. After all, Wu Peifu, besides being called the Jade Marshal, he was also referred to as the philosopher warlord, or general, because he was so educated, cultured, and had passed all the old civil service exams in his younger days. Sure, there was that, you know, little military dictatorship thing. But aside from that, there was this brief moment where it was thought under his leadership and military strength to back it up, this might work out. But it didn't. By November 1922, within the Jirli clique itself, there was an open split between the two most powerful heads, that is, Cao Kun and Wu Peifu. Though Cao was the figurehead, as far as the head of the Zhirli clique went, it was generally acknowledged by all that it was Wu Peifu who wore the trousers in the family. And this led to Cao going to extraordinary lengths to make himself more than just a figurehead. This was the time, you may recall from part four, when I first introduced Cao Kun, this was when he was buying his way into the presidency, paying $5,000 bribes to anyone in the Provisional Assembly who gave him their vote. He got to be the sixth president of the ROC, serving from October 10th, 1923 to November 2nd, 1924. Not that he was a paragon of virtue, but Wu Peifu wasn't happy about the way Cao Kun had gone and done what he did. There was a lot of blowback from the public, and Wu Peifu had to answer to all the national outrage about Cao taking corruption to a whole new level. With all this discord between Cao Kun and Wu Peifu, well, 
There went the Jade Marshal's whole big idea. From the top down, the cabinet, the parliament, poor Li Yuanhong, all these so-called able men, you know, like Wellington Ku and Wan Chonghui, who, well, given better circumstances, might have been able to make a difference. Now, without the essential unity within the Jirli clique top leadership, this whole thing fizzled out quite quickly. And by 1924, there came another in a long line of showdowns between rival warlords. Let's get started with the backstory to this second Jirli Fengtian War. And along the way, I'll introduce a few more warlords who joined the fray. Zhang Zolin, after he was defeated by Wu Peifu on the battlefield, went back to his stronghold in Manchuria and embarked on a very serious military modernization plan and spared no expense to obtain the best military hardware that his formidable resources could afford. And now that aviation was far enough advanced, Zhang Zolin built an air force from the ground up and put his son, Zhang Xueliang, the young marshal, in charge of this. And he trained his forces to no end and aggressively prepared for the showdown that was surely to come. Either he went out and got rid of Wu Peifu, or it was going to be the other way around. Zhang Zolin had bigger ambitions than being the Manchurian warlord. And Zhang Zolin's Japanese supporters, who were placing all their chips on him, they were only too willing to lend a hand or grease the wheels if called upon to help out in this effort of getting rid of Wu Peifu. Like last time, before these two giants, Zhang Zolin and Wu Peifu, before they took the fight to the other, they both went out and started shopping for alliances. Despite their defeat in the Anhui-Jirli War, Duan Qi Rei and the Anhui clique, they were still around. They might not have had the power they once had in 1917, but they still had some influence. Their last stronghold was in Shandong province, and they had influence elsewhere. They decided to cozy up to Zhang Zolin and give their support to his Fengtian clique. Zhang Zolin also approached the KMT down in Guangzhou and tried to win them over. Some interesting things were happening inside the KMT at this moment. I'm going to focus on this in a bit, or maybe next episode. By the way, January 26, 1923, came the Sun-Joffe Joint Statement. Sun Yat-sen, for lack of anyone else interested in supporting him and his KMT, joined hands with Adolf Joffe from the Comintern. The USSR had been formally established on December 30, 1922. The Soviets had big plans for China. And... As an opening gambit in this soon-to-be-messy and complicated political situation, Joffe, on behalf of the Comintern, swore to support Sun Yat-sen in his efforts to unify the country. And they had a plan. Later in June 1924, over at the new Wampoa Military Academy, a 37-year-old Jiang Kai-shek was made the top guy there. That fine institution was built with Soviet money and run on a similar model as you'd find in the Soviet Union. Sun Yat-sen was nominally in charge of everything and based in Guangzhou, serving as the Generalissimo, or Grand Marshal, of this southern military government, whose ultimate mission, again, was to unify the country. 
So this ill-fated experiment between the Kuomintang and the Soviets was giving itself a dry run. This is where Chiang Kai-shek enters the story, but let's hold off before we start talking about him. And to make this happen, the Soviet advisors down in the south of China dragged the communists and nationalists into a first united front, where the two sides would join together in the common objective of bringing down all the warlords and unifying China. This was the first time these two sides came together. We all know, over the next two and a half decades, how that's going to work out, ultimately. And if you recall from that Zhou Enlai eight-part series, Zhou was the one who ended up in Guangzhou in September 1924 as the CCP representative, serving in the political department of the Wampoa Military Academy. And in July 1926, when Jiang launched the Northern Expedition, it will be from here at Wampoa, where he'll lead his army north, all coming up later in this series. Right now, let me turn my right blinker on and pull off to the side of the road and introduce another of the more colorful and memorable warlords. This was Feng Yuxiang, the Christian warlord, as I mentioned at the end of the last episode. He was converted in 1913 or 1914 and became a devout Methodist. It's said he saw this conversion to Christianity as a bridge to cooperation with the Westerners, but whether or not that's true is questionable. He was a very devout Christian till his dying day in 1948. Feng Yuxiang is the one who's remembered in popular Chinese history as the general who used to perform mass baptism ceremonies with his troops using a fire hose, although... No one ever caught that on video. It's one of those George Washington chopping down the cherry tree kind of things. It might have happened. Probably didn't. I thought I saw a photo once. Anyway, Feng Yuxiang, I'm sure you'll not be surprised to learn, was another product of Yuan Shikai's Beiyang organization, joining in 1902. He came from a military background. His father was an officer in the Qing Imperial Army. Both parents, it's said, were opium addicts. As the tale goes, Feng Yuxiang, aged 11, joined Li Hongzhang's Huai army. Nothing much to say except Feng Yuxiang had the right stuff and was popular with his fellow soldiers. And when his chance came, he joined the Beiyang army. If you've ever seen photos of Feng Yuxiang, you'll agree. He was a pretty big guy. Quite massive physically, and he knew how to keep a crowd riveted with his speaking style and the things he spoke about. He was an emotional man and would even weep during public speeches and addressing his troops. Unlike all his other warlord friends and foes, Feng Yuxiang didn't hold one single base as a personal stronghold, so he tended to move around a lot wherever the opportunities were. And he was a no-frills, simple soldier and made a big deal about his simplicity and the ascetic lifestyle he professed. He traveled in freight cars or trucks and seemed to have never accumulated a warlord's wealth. He wasn't an educated man in the Confucian sense, but he was self-educated, which is sometimes just as good. Feng Yuxiang was very strict and demanded a lot from his troops. He had this thing about reconciling Christian morals and Chinese militarism. He was a fitness fanatic in the Teddy Roosevelt style, and he insisted his officers and troops maintain a very tough exercise and training regimen. 
You know, being a run-of-the-mill foot soldier in a warlord army didn't necessarily make one the lowest of the low, but in 1920s Chinese society, it wasn't something that was looked up to either. But Feng Yuxiang's troops, they were the exception. By reputation, they didn't smoke or drink. He had a very strict prohibition against gambling and prostitution. He didn't even like foul language to be used. And if you wanted to rise up the ranks in Feng Yuxiang's army, he had to do it by proving yourself to everyone. He taught Christian and Confucian values to his troops and genuinely tried to help them. Along the way, he established charitable organizations, orphanages, rehab centers for opium addicts. By the way, most all of these warlords got into the opium business, seeing how profitable and lucrative it was. This plague on society made a nice big comeback during the warlord years. And when Fung's men weren't engaged in battle, he occasionally had them doing civil engineering projects like road building and irrigation, flood control. But as I said, he wasn't a warlord who was associated with any one particular province or area in China. So a lot of good that he tried to do never made it to the finish line. Like most of these militarists, their expertise sort of ended with military matters and not with things that involve civil society, public institutions, and organizations. During the decade from 1911 to 1921, Feng Yuxiang saw a ton of action. He was always fighting somewhere. His career rose and fell along the way, depending on how the ball bounced. I guess you could say Feng Yuxiang always kept his options open. And when he made a promise to a potential ally, he often had his fingers crossed behind his back. But for this second major conflict that was brewing between Zhirli and Feng Tian, he had initially hitched his wagon to Wu Peifu, and the Jirli clique. And I mentioned before that the Western nations, they leaned in the direction of Wu Peifu. And Zhang Zolin, he was the favorite of the Japanese. Well, Feng Yuxiang had become the darling of the Soviets. And just like with Wu Peifu, Feng Yuxiang also made the cover of Time magazine four years after Wu in July 1928. So, you know, he's going to be around for a while. Feng Yuxiang and Wu Peifu, though initially on the same side, still had their differences. But after Wu pulled rank on Feng and had him demoted following some incident, Feng Yuxiang wasn't happy about that and made it a point to get even. And Wu Peifu had other headaches as well. His jerly ally and titular head of the organization, Cao Kun, was carrying out measures that prevented Wu Peifu from entering Beijing to start putting the house in order and getting the government set up how he wanted to. So these two were at loggerheads. When the second Zhirli Feng Tian War broke out in mid-September 1924, Feng Yuxiang was still on the Zhirli side, or so Wu Peifu thought. Not only did he have a bone to pick with Wu Peifu, Feng Yuxiang also wasn't so happy with Cao Kun and all the promises made to him of money and support that wasn't forthcoming. There had been a number of wars by this time. Zhirli Anhui, the first Zhirli Feng Tian War, plus other significant battles in central China and in the south and southwest. But this second Zhirli Feng Tian War, this was the biggest one to date, 
We may call those weapons they had kid stuff compared to what's around today, but these warlord armies were equipped with what was the state of the art in 1924-25. It was terrible to behold in action. So here's how it all played out. Riding on the outrage of Cao Kun's purchase of the presidential office in 1923-1924, the Anfu Club, Duan Qi Rei's political organization, they were down but not out and still had a degree of power and influence in Shandong and parts of the lower Yangtze region. They, along with Sun Yat-sen's KMT, had begun having friendly discussions with Zhang Zuolin up in Manchuria. As soon as Wu Peifu got wind of this, he started stressing out, and for good reason, too. He had his chief enemy, Zhang Zuolin, close by in China's northeast, with the KMT and Anhui clique joining together and casting their lot in with Zhang Zuolin, oh, Wu Peifu knew he'd be looking at a potential two-front war now. This is where Lu Yongxiang and Qi Xieyuan enter the story. Two more names for you. They're important to the story, but generally not remembered as headliners from this era. No need to do any deep or shallow dives except to say Lu Yongxiang was military governor of Zhejiang, and was an Anhui clique man. Still loyal to Duan Qi Rei, Wu Peifu wanted to get rid of him. Qi Xieyuan was the military governor next door in Jiangsu, and also was a Jirli guy. He was Wu Peifu's horse in this race. Whichever warlord controlled Shanghai got a piece of that action, not to mention the arsenal of weapons stashed there to protect foreign and Chinese commercial interests. Here was the rub. Shanghai, on paper back then, was considered to be under the jurisdiction of Jiangsu province. The Jiangsu governor, Qi Xieyuan, was supposed to be the top voice in Shanghai, but Lu Yongxiang, next-door governor in Zhejiang, he had set himself up as the decider in Shanghai. Wu Peifu backed Qi Xieyuan in this fight with the Zhejiang governor and Anhui clique supporter Lu Yongxiang. In this inevitable showdown, Qi Xieyuan was backed by Wu Peifu, and Lu Yongxiang had Zhang Zuolin's Feng Tian backing. Though rivals, these two warlords, uh, Lu Yongxiang and Qi Xieyuan, they went to some trouble to keep the peace between their two respective provinces. But on September 3rd, 1924, the cracked facade of their cooperation finally broke away. The prize at stake was the political and economic control over China's most important commercial city and biggest cash cow. Not to mention the vast arsenal of weapons stored there. Qi Xieyuan, being a Zhirli warlord, had the support of the Zhirli clique, and with this kind of firepower... He was able to pose a challenge to Lu Yongxiang. And Sun Chuanfang, down in Fujian, was called up to assist fellow Zhirli comrade Qi Xieyuan. With Sun's army attacking from the south, and after a lot of blood was spilled on both sides, the Zhirli-backed Qi Xieyuan was able to overcome the Zhejiang forces of the Anhui and Feng Tian-backed Lu Yongxiang. This was all happening in early September 1924. By mid-October 1924, Lu Yongxiang waved the white flag. Like other militarists before him, he escaped to Japan to wait things out and get back into the game at the right time. 
So the Zhirli man, Qi Xieyuan, prevailed with a little help from his friends, and the main mission was accomplished of muscling Lu Yongxiang out of Zhejiang and Shanghai. And for his troubles, the governorship of Zhejiang was handed to Sun Chuanfang, where he held sway till the end of 1926. Following this victory by Qi, a joint expedition with the Anhui, Feng Tian, and Feng Yuxiang military assets was sent down to Zhejiang to deal with that situation. And leading that fight for the team was Zhang Zongchang, the dog meat general. This victory in the Jiangsu Zhejiang War did a lot to raise Sun Chuanfang up as another major warlord on a national scale. Thanks to his victories and a little good fortune here and there, Sun found himself the warlord of Fujian, Jiangxi, and with this defeat of Lu Yongxiang's forces, Zhejiang as well. And if you look at a map of China, those three contiguous provinces covered a lot of territory. And while all this was going on in Jiangsu and Zhejiang provinces, Zhang Zolin had been having top-secret discussions with all his closest generals about how best to take down Wu Peifu and the entire Zhirli clique. This Jiangsu-Zhejiang war was a bloody one. Inside the international settlement in Shanghai, they had to go all out to try and keep the fighting at bay, as well as the wounded soldiers who needed hospitals and medical care. Residents of Shanghai all knew this fighting was going on, and they tried not to get caught up in it. It was okay to read about the fighting and the violence, but Shanghai residents didn't want to see it up close or from a distance. So now there was a new power that the enemies of the Zhirli clique had to contend with. This was Sun Chuanfang, the Nanking warlord, as he became known. Sun Chuanfang, he was another Shandonger, and like almost everyone else of his ilk, came up through the Beiyang Army organization. He got his start fighting for Wang Chanyuan. You remember this? Hubei warlord from part three. Wang Chanyuan was one of the Zhirli warlords, which by extension made Sun Chuanfang a Zhirli man too, from way back. Long story short, he had done well, and Sun's first big break came when he was appointed the military governor of Fujian. Qi Xieyuan, the Jiangsu warlord, he didn't get to enjoy his big win in Shanghai too long. As I said, Zhang Zolin sent his secret weapon, the dog meat general, down to Zhejiang, and he got rid of Qi, forcing him to also take a Tokyo vacation, leaving his military assets to Sun Chuanfang. Zhang Zongchang, the dog meat general, we're going to save him for next episode. He had quite a life, and besides all the claims to fame that he's remembered for in popular Chinese history, he was also a very hard-to-defeat opponent on the battlefield, and he was on the Feng Tian team. And we'll look at him closer next episode. So Zhang Zongchang briefly took and held Jiangsu and Shanghai starting in January 1925. And like I said, Qi Xieyuan, uh, he tried to put up a fight, but the help he was counting on from Sun Chuanfang never came, so he didn't get to enjoy being the top guy in Shanghai for too terribly long. Zhang Zongchang kept a weary eye on Sun Chuanfang through 1925, and Sun finally ejected. Zhang Zongchang in the fall of 1925, and Sun Chuanfang 
will be the greatest power in that Jiangsu, Zhejiang, Shanghai region until the Northern Expedition in 1927. For now, the voice that mattered in Jiangsu, Fujian, Anhui, and Jiangxi belonged to Sun Chuanfang. He set up his headquarters in Nanjing, and that's why his nickname in the press became the Nanjing or Nanking Warlord. And as I said, just as this Jiangsu Zhejiang War was starting to happen, Zhang Zolin was already starting to prime the pump for his conquest. It had been two years since the thrashing he got at the hands of Wu Peifu, but he had laid low all this time, and like you've seen before in a hundred movies and novels, he got up off his knees and rebuilt, and trained, and had invested in logistics, new military technologies, including military aircraft. Now it was time for Zhang Zolin to take what should have been his in 1922. These past similar showdowns had always taken place on the farthest southern fringes of Beijing and Tianjin, and all the way east to Shanghai Guan, where the Great Wall meets the Yellow Sea. Tianxia Di Guan, as it says on the sign, the first barrier under heaven. Whoever controlled Shanghai Guan controlled the railway that connected Zhang Zolin's power base in Shenyang with Beijing. This time around, the second Zhirli Fengtian conflict was a little more spread out, but still mostly limited to northern Hebei, as Zhirli province would one day be called. If you want to do a deep dive into the order of battle from start to finish, you will be met with a tidal wave of names of commanders, deputy commanders, and battles splashed all over northern Hebei. Almost half a million combined troops on both sides. All the weapons of war that had caused all that horrible destruction on the battlefields of Europe during World War I. Now these warlords were turning these mechanical devices on each other. I think what's most important to know about the second Zhirli Fengtian War was that, as I said, Zhang Zolin had gone full boat for two years to train for this day. Wu Peifu's Zhirli military organization, well, they were the overconfident incumbent. The two things that caused Wu Peifu to lose this war were perhaps his underestimating Zhang Zolin's firepower and military effectiveness, and for sure, the defection of Feng Yuxiang from the Zhirli side to the Feng Tian side, after hostilities had broken out. That's a whole docudrama in and of itself, how Zhang Zoling, leading up to this moment in 1924, used his lieutenants to secretly approach Feng Yuxiang and make some attractive offers. He knew Feng was having issues with his boss, Wu Peifu, which made him ripe for acquisition. And when some extra convincing was needed, Anhui clique intermediaries approached Feng and sweetened the deal further with a two million yen cherry on top of everything else that had been promised. And when Feng Yuxiang shook hands on that deal, that spelled the end of Wu Peifu and the Zhirli clique as a major player in China. Mid-September 1924, Zhang Zolin's armies came face-to-face with those of Wu Peifu, the armies collided right where Liaoning meets Hebei, Zhirli province, near Shanghai Guan, Qinhuangdao, and in Chengde, 
And then came the big moment. After fierce fighting on both sides that produced no clear winner so far, Feng Yuxiang, on October 22nd, 1924, launched his Beijing coup. His great betrayal to Wu Peifu and the whole Jirli clique. Here's where he pulls the rug out from under Wu. Feng's former boss, Cao Kun, who famously bribed his way to the presidency, he was put under house arrest, where he remained for two years. And Feng's men then went on and took over all the levers of power in Beijing, as it happens in any coup d'etat. Wu Peifu did not see this coming. To say that Feng Yuxiang's defection messed up his plans, that was a bit of an understatement. Despite walking into this war not fully prepared, he had held his own since the outbreak of the war, but now he was getting attacked on all sides and had to drastically change his military strategy mid-battle. Right when Wu Peifu was desperately trying to turn the tide of the war, that's when he learned Feng Yuxiang had defected and was now fighting against him. Although the Japanese military didn't directly participate in this war, they put up that generous cash bribe that pushed Feng Yuxiang over to the Feng Tian side. Zhang Zolin was the horse Japan had placed their bets on in this race, and Wu Peifu and the whole Jirli military organization, they were intensely anti-Japanese. So for Japan, this second Jirli Feng Tian War was a big chance to achieve a nice political victory in China. With Wu Peifu in crisis, that's when everyone lined up against him and came in for the kill. In the end, Wu Peifu and his remaining few thousand troops had to carry out a full-scale retreat to central China where he could rest easy under the care of his Jirli ally, Sun Chuanfang. To the victors, Zhang Zolin and Feng Yuxiang, they were now the kings of the north. Feng Yuxiang had formed his own clique. With this victory, he had hit the big time on the China national stage. In addition to the Christian warlord, eh, he was now known as the betrayer general. But look at everything he had now. He called this new clique the Guomindun. That translates to the National People's Army. And I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but before long, Zhang Zuolin and his partner in this second Jirli Feng Tian War, Feng Yuxiang, they too, in less than a year, turn on each other. And that's all for part seven, coming up in a mere two weeks. Or less, CHP Patreon subscribers, they sometimes get the episodes a few days early, and a whole lot more. Go to patreon.com if you're interested to support this humble program. If you don't like signing up for Patreon, go to paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Throw a few coins into my begging bowl. Ain't too proud to beg, sweet darling. Info on how to do this is at the show notes at teacup.media. Okay, enough already. I can't say our story's almost over, but we'll get to that northern expedition maybe by part eight or nine. This is Laszlo Montgomery once again signing off from the city of Los Angeles here in the Golden State, hoping you'll all keep an open mind to coming back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.